This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Sunday, May the 14th, 2023. Today we begin a series focusing on the prayers of the Apostle Paul. We've wrapped up our series through the book of Colossians, and if you missed that, that's, that's all online on the Beaver Creek tab on our website. Um, and so what, what I'm doing now, I mentioned this at the end of my message last week, um, this is going to be five or six weeks, I think, this, uh, this little series on prayer, though I hope very, very important for us. And after that, as we get to the end of June or maybe right at the beginning of July, we're going to launch into my next big, um, more exegetical expository book study, which is going to be the book of Proverbs. But today, I'm beginning this series, again, looking at the prayers, not all of them, but some of the primary prayers of Paul. And we're doing this as a lens of seeing the emphasis and focus of prayer throughout the New Testament. And what I hope is that by the end of this study, we can reflect and consider, really ask the question, if our emphasis of prayer and how we think about and practice prayer, if that reflects the New Testament's emphasis of prayer. Now, we're going to start with Paul's great prayer for the church that we find in the opening of the book of Ephesians, but we're not going to go there until next week. Today, I want to begin this series by exploring a few key concepts that's the way of framing this exploration that we're going to do. So first, I want us to go to a passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, I want you to track with me as we walk through this. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, and here Paul says, Now you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, friends, Paul here speaks of an old self, right? Who we used to be and the new self, who we are now, right? Our identity, the new creation that we are in Christ. Now note that the text here does not talk about old behavior and new behavior, although our new self will increasingly yield new patterns, right? Christ-like patterns in our mind, our will, our emotions, how we think, how we feel, and how we act. But friends, this is key. If our foundational concept of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus is focused, again, foundational concept, and is focused primarily on our behavior, then for almost everyone, what we would do is try to, is try to re reform and conform who we used to be to a new pattern of life with the old source, right, our way of living, just being ourself. Right? We would continue to live a life focused on self, self-effort, self-control, but we would try to squeeze and shape that approach to life, right? Living whatever our life looks like, right? The foundational approach, living out of our own effort, out of our own ability, and shape that approach into a life that's religious and moral that resembles our understanding of a Christian worldview or morality, okay? To be a bit theological on that point, what we would try to do is to reform our flesh. Now, that's... That's a big thought that I just gave you there. And if, I, if you missed that, maybe reach out to me. We can talk about it more. Um, but, 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 but moving on, this approach 
right? Just, again, trying to conform, reform our life into a way that it mirrors or it more reflects what we see in Scripture, but essentially doing it out of the same pattern of living that we always have done. This is well-motivated, but it is an exercise doomed to failure because our old self, with our source of life drawn from, well, our self, our flesh, it isn't able to express the life, the character, and the nature of Christ, at least not consistently or even primarily over time. Because the only person who can express the life of Christ is Christ. And if we're living with our source, even with the good intentions of trying to look like Christ, if our source is still ourself, again, not consistently or primarily over time, we're going to fail. You see, the default position of our old self is exactly that. Again, self. And even though we do our best to change our behavior, both internally and externally, we find that our primary life experience is a continual fight against temptation, sin, and brokenness where we occasionally have times of victory. And we may say things like, you know, I'm I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And our primary spiritual awareness is on our battle against sin. You know, unless we just give in and capitulate. But the picture of Scripture, however, is that our primary concept as a disciple of Jesus is that we have been given a new life. Not just a new set of behavioral patterns, but a new life, a new internal spiritual reality, which is the presence, the spirit, the character, and the nature of Christ in us. And so our foundation isn't our behavior, it is our identity. And over time, as we're able to rest and receive peace from the unshakable foundation of what is already true of us in Christ, which we access and experience by faith, not by performance, okay, then one day at a time, our default moral experience will begin to shift from a primary struggle against sin with occasional victory to people who primarily experience freedom from the bondage of sin and brokenness, even though we do at times fall. Okay, guys, I just summed up right there my last 20 years of teaching here at Trinity. But the point is, is that as Christ in us gradually changes our default experience of life, this will also change our default perspective of how we pray. I want you to go with me to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Hey, again, I want you to think, what is our, just as kind of the Christian world in general, from a large perspective, what's the default way we think about and practice prayer? Okay, with that in mind, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, very, very famous passage. You've heard it many, many times. Paul here says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, what is the thrust of this passage? First, if we consider it for a moment, we see here a matter of perspective, a lens of life that is rooted in an awareness of the goodness and presence of God. 
Right? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Or let the character and nature, the joy of God, transform your perspective in life. Right? He talks about being gentle. Right? This is a fruit, a result of the Spirit of Christ within us. He says, don't be anxious about anything. I mean, let's just stop here for a second. Because that's, that's crazy talk, right? Don't be anxious about anything, right? Out of ourselves, that's impossible. This is a supernatural perspective that Paul is giving here that's only possible by a spirit-led trust in the goodness of God, a trust that prevails no matter the nature of our circumstances. And then Paul says, within this perspective of joy, Right, within this perspective of gentleness and trust in everything, by prayer and petition, from a place of continuous gratitude, present your request to God. My friends, what does this tell us? Well, one thing that it tells us is that, yes, amen, God invites us to bring everything about life before Him, to Him, in prayer. And we respond, yes, that, that is what prayer is, isn't it? Bringing our lives, our needs, our petitions before God, right? Amen, pass the butter. And guys, we resonate with this passage so much because it is, it is one of the few places in the New Testament that seems to explicitly say what we instinctively believe about prayer and how we overwhelmingly practice prayer, which is bringing our circumstantial needs before God. And friends, what I want to do in the coming several weeks is to take the incredible invitation that we see here in Philippians 4.6 and see it, right? Seek to understand it, interpret it through the larger New Testament lens of prayer as we see it taught and practiced by Paul. Because, to sum this up in advance, what we will find is that while, again, yes, glorious yes, God invites and even commands us to bring all of our life before Him. We are taught to do so with the faith perspective that God is sovereign. Okay, let's unpack that a sec. This is the faith perspective that God already knows our needs, cares about them more than we do, and He has already promised to provide us with everything we need for life and godliness a life that is spiritually and emotionally healthy and full in Christ. That's 2 Peter 1.3 that I basically quoted there. In fact, the context of Philippians 3 and 4, if you actually go look at it closely, is not on our own temporary needs, but on our need to know Christ, to experience His transforming presence, and for our prayers and petitions to be primarily oriented to God's kingdom and his work in this world. Likewise, the promise of peace that then guards our heart is not a result of how our prayers are answered, but a result of the faith to trust God with our lives in the first place. I mean, this is a striking thing about Philippians 4. In the very passage most commonly cited to place our own needs at the center of our understanding of prayer, the, the, the central emphasis of this teaching isn't on us. It is on Christ. In Matthew 6, Jesus describes this focus, this trust, in his famous teaching that I like to call the principle of seeking first. 
course, Matthew 6 is where we are, and I'm starting in verse 31. And Jesus says, this is part of Matthew 6, is this incredible passage. And so, but right, right here, Jesus says, So do not worry, saying, right, you could interpret that, praying to God, saying to God, praying. So do not, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, right? The word run after there is key. And he says, and your heavenly father knows that you need them. All right, just stop there for a second. In other words, <laughs> Jesus here is saying, why do you spend all your time saying to God, hey, God, I've got this need and this need and this need and this need. God knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself, right? Do not obsess in your prayer life over what is going to happen next, but rather look to God, for each day has enough trouble of its own. Look to the presence of Christ right now, in the midst of whatever life may be. My friends, that's a famous verse, but we don't hear it and think about it enough. You know, there's so many things we spend our time and energy on that occupy the first places of our minds and hearts. And many of these are good things. Many of them are not good things, but many of them can be wonderful. But we must hear what Jesus is saying. Ultimately, we have only one hope, one source in life, and that is God in Christ. And God knows our needs. And friends, our only hope of having the spiritual strength, the emotional health, the intellectual honesty, the balance, and the obedience to prevail in life is to seek Him first, to first know Him. For He, not our needs, He is our reference point. And if this is our heart, to seek Christ first, then we will then ask the question, Lord, how would you have us pray? I mean, if Christ is in us as our source of life, as our identity, then what does Christ in us long for us to pray for? You see, if prayer is one of the greatest invitations from God, then what does prayer look like that flows from the heart of God? Now, think about that idea, prayer from the heart of God. Friends, one of the clearest places we see this idea in the New Testament is 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is kind of a thesis statement, um, even though this isn't Paul, this is John. A bit of a thesis statement for this series that we're going to go through. And this is what we see. Um, Peter says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. We can talk a lot about that, but the principle is, is that as we seek first God in his kingdom, his righteousness, his nature, right, when he is our first place passion, then the Holy Spirit will lead us in how we pray. The Holy Spirit will lead us as we look to the Spirit in dependence and trust in what we pray for. Simply put, this is the concept that when we pray, the posture of our heart and mind would be one of openness to God's direction, a posture that desires and anticipates the leadership of the Spirit, and 
And friends, this is the big point for today that I've been leading to. One of the most powerful ways for us to discern and learn how the Holy Spirit would lead us to pray is to look at how the Holy Spirit led the writers of Scripture to pray. See, here's the principle. When we hear, see, hear biblical writers pray in specific ways and for specific things, then we can know that that is a prayer motivated by the Holy Spirit and that that is a prayer, that this is prayer that flows from the heart of God. And so we see, when we see this prayer in the New Testament, we should pay attention. And this is what we're going to do across the coming weeks. But one last preliminary framing thought for today I want to give you right now, okay? Friends, if we are praying according to the conviction and leadership of the Holy Spirit, hand in hand with the teaching of Scripture, we should anticipate that the first place God will begin, that God will begin to answer our prayer is in our own lives. Let me restate that. If our first question is, Lord, how would you have us pray? Then a second and inseparable question must be, Lord, how would you have us respond? How would you have me respond? Right, this is a, uh, this idea that we're going to see. It's the prayer of God that we are seeking here, but it's our response to that prayer. In Matthew 6, again, verses 9 through 13, um, um, we see the example. This is the beginning of Matthew 6, is the, the, the Lord's Prayer, the most famous prayer in the New Testament. And how does it begin? Right? You know how it begins. Um, Jesus said, right, uh, you know, this then is how you should pray. And he says, may your kingdom come, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Friends, what are we saying there? What are we praying there? We're playing, praying, Lord, may your rule, the way things will be when every heart is surrendered to you, when every heart is fully alive in you, the way things will fully be in heaven, Lord, may that begin to come to pass on earth now. You know, for most of my life, when I considered that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, specifically that statement, my focus would my, <laughs> in my own head and my heart would be on the rest of the world, specifically the non-Christian, non-believing world, right? the big, bad, immoral well, world, that, that needs to change for this prayer to come true. I would basically say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come in all of them. May your will be done in all of them. But that's not the emphasis of the prayer. The focus is on us as people who already are followers of Christ. Lord, may your kingdom, your rule, your character in nature be revealed in me, be revealed in us as the community of faith. May it be manifest in me right now in the midst of life as it really is, not just in the future of heaven when we die, and Lord, not just what I want you to come and do in the lives of all these unbelieving sinners, but in me today. So, my friends, how does the Spirit of Christ in us desire us to pray how do we see this through the lens of the prayers of Paul? And how will the Spirit work for these prayers to be answered in us? This is where we are going. And again, we'll start next week as we look at the majestic pastoral prayer 
of Ephesians chapter 1. I really hope you join us and track with us through this study. And until then, until next Sunday, have a wonderful week. I love you. Thank you.